and our reading is found in Genesis chapter 32. It's not as long as the marathon reading that John did last week for us. It's only 32 verses, but it's still quite a long chapter. So Genesis chapter 32, we're continuing our story in the life of Jacob. He's just left Laban behind, having built a memorial called uh, Mitzvah um, in, in Bethel, and Gilead, sorry, and he's making his way now back towards Cana, the promised land, and he's about to encounter his brother Esau. So Genesis chapter 32, here it's written, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahaniam. Jacob sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to, to my Lord, that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God, my father Abraham, sorry, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sands of the sea, which cannot be counted." He spent the night there, and from, from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third and all the others who follow the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you greet him and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. 
That night, Jacob got up with his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, so that Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I wonder if you've ever been between a rock and a hard place. Somewhere where it's impossible. You can't go forward, you can't go backwards. Either present you with an impossible situation. Somewhere very difficult for you to be, rather like this poor climber here in this chimney. Between a rock and a hard place, damned if you do and damned if you don't. And, Jesus, and, and Jacob himself was in one such place, between a pile of rocks he'd set up with Laban, his, his uh, father-in-law, a place at Gilead, saying he would never go back into Gilead, and this place was a mark of witness between him. And now he was going out towards Canaan, and he was facing his angry brother and 400 men. Between a rock and a hard place. Mizpah and Peniel. And he was enacting obedience. He was doing what God had told him to do. And suddenly he was facing this situation where actually he was facing a difficult uh, situation. God had told him in, in Genesis 31 this. God had said to him, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. He'd been commanded to move back across the river Jordan to the promised land the land of his father Isaac and his brother Esau. And so we're told in verse 1, Jacob went on his way. He was acting in obedience. It was a work of faith because he had no idea how his brother would receive him. When he'd left Canaan 20 years before, he was running for his life because Esau was planning his murder. And as he left, his mother said to him, Listen, I will send you word when your brother's murderous spirit has abated and then you can come back. But word had never come. Rebecca had never asked for his son, her son to return. Perhaps she was dead. Perhaps she was ill. Jacob didn't know. But God has said, go back to Canaan. And so here he is, going back to cross the river Jordan, back into Canaan, not knowing 
what he was going to face. But the thing was, is that Jacob was walking in faith. He was doing, he was acting obediently. And we find in the New Testament, but often Jesus calls us to act in faith. And as we act in faith, he blesses us. We find this with some of the miracles, like this one here in Luke 17. He said to lepers, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. In one sense, it was madness because these lepers were still covered in the leprosy. They walked away from Jesus covered in the leprosy. They hadn't been healed. But he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And the priests were, the, um, were like the medical um, uh, inspectors in, in the communities. And they would declare someone clean or unclean. And on the way to, the, to see the priests, they became healed. They stepped out in faith, and the process of the journey brought about their healing as they demonstrated their faith. And this is what Jacob is doing. He's obeying God. He's leaving, the, um, he's leaving uh, Gilead. He's on his way back to Canaan, not knowing what he's facing, but going there in faith. And that period of uncertainty, suddenly God does something wonderful. He gives him another revelation. We're told in verses 1 and 2 this. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. And so he named that place Mahanian. What grace God is showing this man, Jacob. First, God gives him a revelation at Bethel 20 years before when he sees this wonderful picture of a ladder going to heaven and angels going up and down, descending and ascending this heaven, uh, descending and ascending and descending the ladder. And then God meets him again here in this place. And later on in the stories we read just now, God will meet him again. God is revealing himself bit by bit to Jacob, encouraging his faith, showing that he is not alone. He, in fact, is not just not alone, but he's surrounded by the messengers of God. He's not just alone. He is literally surrounded by this camp. It's a wonderful picture. God gives him the eyes to see something spiritual. But his camp is not a solitary camp. His camp is one of two camps. He has his caravan, and next to his caravan in this valley of the River Jordan, he sees another host, and it's a mighty host. It's the mighty host of God, surrounding, protecting his caravan. The uh, Apostle Paul writes to church in Thessalonica and says this, he says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And the psalmist recalls for us in Psalm 130 this. He says, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding. Angels are invisible creatures. We very rarely see them. But they do exist. They're not the kind of angels that you have in the medieval period, just like hell in the medieval period. The kind of Dante's hell doesn't exist. It's not that kind of place at all. Hell is a very real place, but it's not the way the medieval people made it to be because that suggests that Satan is actually in control of hell. And of course he's not. He is the biggest one suffering in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. But also there are angelic beings, mighty beings that we can't see, but do occur. And I've read many stories of people encountering angels in their lives. Missionaries. I read a story some years ago of a missionary 
who was um, at, uh, who was ca- caught by a, a, a gun welding party in the jungle, a party of guerrillas. And as he was talking to them, they suddenly turned and went white and ran away. And later on, several months later, he encountered one of the guerrillas and he asked why we didn't take him prisoner. Um, and they said, why well, we couldn't take you prisoner because you had you know, three or four very, very big, strong men with you. And he says, no, I wasn't. I was by myself. And it somehow, in that situation, God had accompanied that missionary and prevented him from being captured by these angelic beings. There's lots of stories like that that go around. It's not common, but it does happen. When God gives us the eyes to see things that happen spiritually. And God suddenly revealed to Jacob that he was not alone. But although he was facing this mighty threat in front of him, this unknown reaction of his brother, God was camping around him. There's a wonderful passage in Hebrews that says this. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? God gives Jacob a much needed spiritual tonic. And he will need it. Because actually as he's had this vision of these camps around him with these angels, suddenly the messengers arrive back. The messengers he sent out carrying a message of greeting to his brother Esau. And they come back to him and say this, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. That's all it says in this passage. And there's a lot is the fear in that is actually what's not being said. The fact that there's no greeting coming back from his brother. There's no welcome from his brother. The fact that he's coming and he's coming with 400 men. And if you'd been absent from a, a relative of yours that you'd, you'd wronged many years ago and you were told that they were coming to see you with 400 people, I think you'd be pretty worried as well. It certainly worried. It certainly worried Jacob. He began to pray. He's at a new low point. The last time he was this afraid, he was making that lonely journey by himself, having left the home for the first time, around about the age of 40. And he was walking towards an unknown future. And at that point, God encountered, he met God at Bethel. It's something somehow ironic now, but he actually now divides his camp also into two, rather like the vision he's just had. And we're told in verse 7 to 8, In great fear and distress, he divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. This, in fact, was a very common technique used by caravans in the ancient Near East. If they were attacked, they were split into two, the idea being hopefully that one of the parties would escape. If Esau meant Jacob harm, the reality was... Jacob was in a very bad place. Because he wasn't just with his family, his wives and his children, he was with his flocks. And on average, a herdsman, even if he's moving fast, can only move up to around about, if he's moving very fast, about 14 miles an hour. Normally around about 10 to miles an hour across the desert. If you're on camel, you can easily get up to 25 to 30 miles an hour. This is why... Jacob had been overrun by his, 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 his father-in-law Laban. 
even though he'd left three days before Laban began the pursuit, he was um, herding animals and Laban came on camels and donkeys. There was no way that Jacob could outrun Esau and he can't go back into Gilead because that'd be going back towards Laban. And so what does he do? He prays. We're told, then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you said, who said to me, go back to the country of your relatives and I will make you prosper. He begins to plead with God, God help me. There's a bit of a note here of a, a wee bit of criticism. I don't know if you see there. You who said to me, he's saying, you who said to me, I'm now in this state because I'm doing what you said to me. He is in a situation because he's obeying God faithfully. It's rather like that famous catchphrase used to get through these two, from these two characters. Remember those Oliver Hardy and Stan Laurel? And Hardy would often turn to Laurel and say, Well, that's another fine mess you've got me into. And here we have Jacob obeying God, but in another fine mess. You can imagine his frustration. But Jacob points out to God, He is where he is because he's following his instructions. But then he begins to plead for God to actually intervene. And we see Jacob as a changed man. Over the years he's spent in Laban, um, in Haran, he has begun to change. He's less of a scheming man he was once. He's beginning to change into the man that God wants him to be. God's been working on this schema. And now he knows that his wealth and blessing is not the result of his own scheming, of his own hard work. No. What he's saying in this prayer, he says this. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servants. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Jacob has come to recognize that he's not a self-made man. He is a God-made man. And that's key to us as Christians. When we realize that God has blessed us, that things we've achieved, our qualifications, our, our homes, our, our jobs, or whatever they are, our children, they're not simply because we are gifted people. God gifts us. God blesses us. And we need to give him thanks for what he does. And Jacob realizes that all the good things he has are not the consequence of his own hand, but the consequence of a gracious God. And he also begins to recognize that God's promises. He's beginning to realize he can depend upon God's word. And so he actually speaks God's word back to him. He says this, But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He's saying to God, God, I trust you. You have said this. Be good to your promise. Fulfill your promise in me. I can't be slaughtered by Esau. I can't be overrun by him because you have promised me prosperity. He's not calling for favors or trying to negotiate with God. He's merely reminding God of his promises. It's a prayer of faith, saying, God, I believe you will do this. And this is what you said. I call call to you your promises. And there's so many promises in the Bible. God is a faithful God that if only we take hold of those promises and say to God, God, you've promised this in Scripture. I claim that promise. I want you to do that for me according to your word. It's interesting when he prays in verse 7, he actually uses two names for God. He says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord. 
When it mentions God there, it's using the very common Hebrew name Elohim, which is a common name for God. It's, it was a name actually not of the, 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 the God Jehovah. It was a name of uh, gods in the Canaanite society as well. But as God reveals himself in the Old Testament, more and more God is referred to by the name Lord. And that name there is Yahweh or Jehovah. And what that name is, is a covenant name of God. It's a name that refers to God negotiating and agreeing to do certain things. And it displays the development in Jacob's thinking, but he's come to know God not simply as Elohim. He's come to know God as Yahweh. He's come to know God as Jehovah, the God who promises, the God who makes arrangements with us. God is a God who we can depend upon, because when he says he'll do something, he will do it. And Jacob is claiming those promises. And so he prays next in verse 11. He says, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. This is the prayer of help. God, I'm in this situation. I'm in this situation because I'm being obedient to you. You've promised me. Now deliver on your promises. It's a prayer of faith. But he was going to show that he was willing to do as much as he could. And so we don't just see a prayer and supplication in this passage. We see a sacrifice. And we see the, the reflection, the depth of the changes in Jacob. Because he's willing to go a long way to melt the anger in his brother's heart. There was a time for Jacob when he was so driven by his ambition to get seniority over his brother Esau that he was willing to go to extreme measures to deceive his brother and his father to deliver a win. But in that process, he'd lost his brother. He'd lost his father. He'd even lost his home and had to go into exile in the land of Canaan, in the land of Haran. For Jacob, getting his father's blessing had become a very hollow victory. But now as he nears Canaan in his homeland, in his homeland, there's a very different Jacob in view. One who's received several revelations from God. The revelation in Bethel and now the revelation in Mahananaim. And who, one who has experienced the hardship under the, his mischievous uncle Laban. But had learnt to get to know God better and the value of hard work. Jacob had once grasped his brother's heel. But this grasping character had begun to melt. And he wanted peace with his brother. And so he sacrifices a great deal. And you see the first thing in this because he lets go of his, he let go of his pride. How does he address his brother? He says, my Lord, in verse 4, 5 and 18. And how does he refer to himself? He refers to himself as your servant. This is no longer the grasping Jacob. This is the, 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 the brother who's willing to be humble in the presence of his brother. And he lets go of his possessions. He comes back across the Jordan as a very, very wealthy man. But his wealth means nothing if he cannot get a reconciliation with his brother. And so he decides to give him a gift and what a gift it is. 550 animals. I mean, that would make someone wealthy in a current society. Back in the ancient Near East, this was like winning the lottery. He gives him 20 female and 20 male goats, 220 goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, so 220 sheep, 30 camels, and camels were the cars of the ancient Near East. 30 camels and their young, so potentially around about 40, 45 camels. 
40 cows and 10 bulls, so a flock of 40 cattle. And then 20 female donkeys and 10 male. Donkeys were a bit like the escort of the desert. The camel was great in the desert and and could travel fast, but donkey was the way of traveling around the local towns and what have you. You didn't go very far on a donkey, but used it to convey your goods um, and to go short distances. Altogether, you've got 550 uh, animals here. It is a huge gift. It is a life-changing gift. It will make, take anyone in the ancient Near East and make them a very wealthy person instantly. And he wasn't trying to buy, bribe Esau. The narrator tells us in this passage this, For he thought I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. When I see him, perhaps he will receive me. He realized he'd wronged his brother. He realized that he may not receive him, but perhaps these would help to melt the hard heart of his brother. Jacob had done wrong. He had wronged him and been wronged by Esau. And now he's helping to bless his brother with the blessings that God had given him. And so when eventually we find him in the next chapter, he meets him and Esau tries to turn away the, the gift Jacob says to him these words, I have found favor in your eyes. Accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. It was a massive gift, because Jacob was a changed man, from the grasper to the, to the giver. God had reached out and touched the heart of Jacob in Bethel, and now had touched the heart of Jacob in Mahananim. He'd been touched. And when God touches our heart, it needs to touch every aspect of our lives. Two of the world's greatest evangelists preached that when God changes someone deeply, he changes their attitude towards their wealth. And this is very clear. Billy Graham said this, If a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. And John Wesley said this, Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Jacob had been changed by God, had encountered God powerfully, and now God was going to move in even a deeper way in his life. And so we're told that that Jacob sends the rest of his family and his children across the Jabbok, and then he goes back and he struggles with God. And that's the last things we see in this passage. Jacob struggling with God. And this is one of the most mysterious passages in the whole of the Bible. It's, it's, you know, what is happening here? What is going on here? And it is hard because we're not given a great deal of detail in Genesis chapter 32. I believe that he went back over the Jabbok that night to pray, to spend more time in the presence of his father. And that he was wrestling in prayer. And that spiritual wrestling somehow became literally a physical wrestling. The Jews and other nations, in fact, believe when you pray, you pray with your hands raised. That's why some Christians, when they're worshipping and singing songs, raise raise their hands. If you go to Israel, you will see next to the Wailing Wall, um, Jews raising their hands in worship. It's something that they do as a natural way of praising and I imagine that as he came across this across the Jordan and he sank down on his knees, he raised his hands and began to pray. And somehow that struggle in prayer 
he found his hands filled with a person and he was physically struggling with this, 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 this angelic being. The prophet Hosea, uh, Hosea writes about this in Hosea chapter 4 and he says this, In the womb he grasped, this is Jacob, In the womb Jacob grasped his brother's heel as a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favour. He found him at Bethel and talked, um, talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. Jacob is struggling. He is weeping. He is quite literally saying, God, save me. Save my, my, my family. Save my caravan. It's interesting that Jabok, the river he actually crossed, literally means, or it's, it, 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 it actually means to wrestle. It's suggested that there's something of a pun happening there in the Hebrew language. Here he is. He's terrified. He's seen this picture of God's uh, uh, camp around him, but he's terrified because he's got 400 men bearing down upon him with his murderous brother. What does he do? Where does he go? He can't go anywhere. The only place he can go is to his knees, and so he does that, and he cries out to God, and as he struggles with God, suddenly God appears before him, and he physically starts to wrestle with God beside the Jabbok. God is revealing his character we sung the hymn, the beautiful hymn earlier on, um, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. And, and I, I love that hymn because God is invisible in many ways, but God did not want to remain invisible. He sent his son to reveal himself. His son is a photograph of the father and of the father's heart. Here he is, Jacob, in this low point of his life. What does God do? God reveals himself in flesh, physically. To help the man understand. And that's what God did to us in Jesus. At our low point, when we couldn't save ourselves, when we were between a rock and a hard place, between, um, between our sin and between hell, Jesus came down. Jesus re revealed God to us so that we could find a way through. And by the cross, Jesus has paid the price and removed that hard place so we can go forward with him. Jesus reveals God, and this angelic figure comes before him, reveals God in, 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 to Jacob. As Hosea the prophet writes, as a man he struggled with God, he struggled with the angel and overcome him. He wept and begged for his favor. Some Christians in the modern day and age find Christianity difficult because we are more and more at, at odds with our culture. More and more we seem to be different. Things we believe are not what the world outside believes. But that doesn't make Christianity wrong. It just makes Christianity more of a struggle. It just makes Christianity more difficult, perhaps. But Jesus never promised that Christianity will be easy. He said, as I carry my cross, you will carry your cross. And carrying a cross is not easy. And people who think that Christianity is going to be easy don't understand the nature of Christianity. Because Christianity is following the Lord Jesus. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But his truth is not the truth of this world. And why should it be? Because this world doesn't follow Jesus. It follows the ruler of the, of the prince of this air. It follows Satan. Jesus says to us in Matthew. Sorry. I was going to show you this picture. This picture is actually of, of the Jabbok stream uh, in the summer when it's not in, not in flood. 
Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The one who struggles with God is the one who does the will of the Father. And there are people, just because people wear a dog collar or people wear, um, are called pastor or called minister, does not make them necessarily a follower of Jesus Christ. Our life must follow the code of Jesus, must be under the instruction of the Lord. And it's not easy to be a Christian. It is a struggle. And Jacob realized to follow God, to go back towards Canaan, wasn't easy. And he struggled and he prayed for God's presence and for God's help. And he struggled there beside the Jabbok. But God blessed him. Because our God is a God of grace. God appears to Jacob in a way he can understand. As a man. That's why the place was named Peniel. Which means in Hebrew, I have seen the face of God. And the reason that God said to him, it's getting light, let me go, was because... Um, no one can see the face of God and live in, 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 in that way. And it, uh, God, um, the angel was saying to him, I must go while my face is still dark. But what grace, because God allows Jacob to win the fight. Not because he overpowered God. No one can overpower God. The ind- indication of that is the fact that when the angel put its hand upon the hip of Jacob, that hip was put out of joint. What if God had put, the angel had put his hand upon the neck of Jacob and his neck was out of joint? Very easily, God could have easily won that fight. But he allowed Jacob to win because he wanted Jacob to receive the blessing. And God wants us to receive the blessing. God is a God of grace. And God was uh, was teaching Jacob through this final struggle that he wanted to bless him. He was going to bless him, and he was even going to bless him by the reaction and reception he was going to get through Esau, his brother. Because God is always keen to bless his people. If only we learned to go to him and to struggle on our knees and to pray. I really believe, I've got no doubt in my mind, I really believe that God will bring revival to this country when we really start to struggle with God like Jacob and come back to prayer and realize the importance of prayer and the importance of fasting because it's not about techniques it's not about the latest Christian book that's come from America or the latest type of service it's actually about God reviving people and that revival starts here it doesn't start out there it starts with you and me taking God seriously like Jacob is taking God seriously I read recently a wonderful quote And this quote says this, Revival is renewal gone viral. Revival is renewal gone viral. In other words, when God's people are renewed, revival will come. Because when one person's on fire, that fire, like the fires in in Australia, will spread to another person and to another person. And eventually the whole area will be consumed by the revival flames of people on fire. For God. 
And the wonderful thing about this passage is that you find that Jacob emerges from this whole scene. He emerges broken, he emerges branded, and he emerges blessed. He's broken because he's got a hip that's now out of joint, and for the rest of his life he's going to walk with this limp. But this limp is a demonstration of God's love. But it wasn't a dream, it wasn't a vision. It was a real encounter with God. Every time he let, limped, he would realize that God had touched him, that God was real. And he wasn't just broken, he was branded because God gives him a new name. He says, you'll no longer be called Jacob, Jacobus, supplanter, deceiver. You're no longer called Jacobus. Your new name is Israel. And Israel is an incredible name. Because Israel is unusual. When God's names, the names of God in the Old Testament very often start with El, which is the basic Hebrew word for God. So El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Elohim, God Most High. For some reason, Israel isn't El Isra. It is Israel. Not El Isra, Israel. If it was El Isra, it would be God who strives. Because it's Israel, it means he strives or struggles with God. And that means two things. It means, first of all, we struggle to achieve what God wants us to achieve with God. And secondly, it means we struggle because God is, we struggle with God in the sense that he's alongside us, helping us win the fight. Remember early on, this whole passage starts with God revealing to him that there's two camps, that he's surrounded by the angelic forces of God. God calls us no longer Jacob, the old person, the supplanter, the schemer, the one who tried to do everything in our own strength, the self-made person. God wants us not to be Jacob's. He wants us to be Israel, the one who strives with God, who prays and, and wrestles with God in prayer, but also the one who recognizes when the victory comes, it comes because of God and not because of you or me. That's the God that we worship. Struggle with God. He emerges broken, branded, but blessed. And God wants to bless this church. He wants to bless this town. If only we struggle with God more, like Jacob, and allow him to change us from Jacob to Israel. Because then God will reveal his power and give us the victory and show just what he can do in Essex, in this country, and all around. Praise be to his name. Let's stand and sing our final hymn. As I lift my eyes to the quiet hills.